Welcome to The Road to Motherhood. I'm your host, Colette Fox. During this episode, I'm joined by ambitious entrepreneur podcaster, Sarah Flynn. Sarah will be sharing her interesting story about the trials of fertility treatment as a same-sex couple and the processes of finding a sperm donor. Welcome, Sarah. It's lovely to have you join me today. Thank you so much, Claire. It's an absolute pleasure to be um, asked to come on your show, Uh, and specifically because normally I get asked to do things that are purely business-related, so it makes a really nice change to just speak about something that's really close to my heart, so um, I'm really privileged to be on the show today, thank you. So would you be able to tell the listeners a little bit about your story? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I suppose we'll get the cat out of the bag straight away. So I'm part of a one half um, or the worst half probably of a same sex um, marriage. So me, me and my wife have been together 10 years and we've been married just over three. Um, and when we first got together, I suppose, um, as any couple naturally does, one of the first kind of conversations you have to decide whether you're suitable for each other is asking if you want children. And, um, you know, we both very much said from the outset, yes, we do. So that kind of took that hurdle out the way and it was something that we were both kind of in our life plans I suppose. So as I say we got married in 2017 and then shortly after that that's when we kind of wanted to start trying to have children and obviously uh, as I've said with us being same sex IVF was really one of the only options for us so yeah we we started looking into it and we were looking into kind of NHS funded versus private and and ultimately though NHS was cheaper and there was still a cost attached to it and one of the main reasons for that if anyone's wondering is because that neither me or my wife Sammy have got any medical issues so we don't any free tries as as it were so though there'd be like a subsidized element and ultimately we would it would still be a cost that we would have to incur right and then kind of what happened after that was when we were looking into it that the uh, NHS wait was something like two to four years even just to get started and at the time Sammy was 29 and I was 28 and obviously as I'm sure you'll know and you'll have discussed before that the stats really for doing IVF over 30 become much sort of slimmer the chance, chances of conceiving so so one of the main that was then we decided to go private because of that Right, okay. So we started our journey really in May 2018 properly. That was the first time we met with the consultant at the private hospital here in Leeds where we live. Um, and then obviously we went to all the other appointments and, and treatments there. But but really what happened was, though we were under the private consultant, we ended up going to the NHS hospital for everything, which was a bit of a surprise to me. And basically, and now as I understand it, all private means is that you just pay to jump the queue essentially. But once you've been right. for the initial consultation, yeah. Everything else really is just the same as any other NHS patient. Um, so then we decided um, how we were going to do it, which I will come on to a, a little bit later. But the long and short of it is we were going to use my egg and then my wife, Sammy, would carry and we would use a sperm donor. So um, in terms of treatments, that's a little bit funny uh, for us versus kind of a heterosexual relationship because obviously the woman would take all the medications for IVF. But for us, because of the way we were doing it, it was very much a 50-50 split. So, um, you know, my wife kind of, well, sorry, I actually had all the injections for the egg stimulation at the start and then went through the egg collection procedure. And then my wife, Sammy, obviously took all the tablets, etc. Caused the egg being um, inserted to start the, sorry, to stop the egg from from being rejected in her body. So the long and short of it was that everything overall was successful and Sammy fell pregnant first time. So we found out she was pregnant on the 24th of September 2018. And then she gave birth to our beautiful son, Zachary, on the 1st of June 2019. And he's now 
14 months old. So, you know, we feel very lucky. There's nothing medically wrong with us. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, they got 13 eggs from me at the egg collection. Uh, 10 were okay to use. And then um, six ultimately um, were, were joined with the sperm to become successful embryos. So we still pay um, storage fees on, on an annual basis for those kind of five other embryos. So make no mistake, I'm sure we'll be back to use them at some point. Maybe not all five. Um, <laughs> But, but definitely maybe another one or two. So, um, you know, and I suppose what was really interesting about the process as a whole is that for us, it was it was pretty seamless, you know, that there were some hiccups along the way, which I'm sure we'll come to talk about. But um, one of the things that really hit home to me, and this must be something that you come across all the time, is in the process of the egg collection, obviously I'd, I'd been to have the extraction done and then I was in the recovery room and there was... Um, like a lady in a cubicle next to me, so obviously you've just got the curtains pulled around, there's no actual physical barriers or walls to stop yeah. you kind of going on. And um, the consultant was kind of coming round to each cubicle to talk to uh, the retrospective women about the, the success or unsuccess, as it were, of the egg collections. And he kind of went into this cubicle next to me when I was waiting and he said to this woman, oh, you know, we've managed to get um, one egg and I know it's been your second round of IVF and and that really hit home to me because when I started to really think about those stats you know for me they got 13 eggs of that yeah. 10 were okay to use of that only six took to the embryos so then I started to really think about okay so this has been great for us but one what are the actual chances um you know if someone has medical complications of taking um ever been able to kind of get a successful egg that works well very slim and then also even if that if the egg is okay then what are the chances of that one egg um actually being able to connect with the sperm to become an embryo and when you look at it in that you know it was a real eye-opener to me you know that, that kind of just to see and listen to other people's struggles i suppose so whilst overall it was a great experience for me i think probably um you know when i look back I, it did really make me understand how difficult it, it can be for others really yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's amazing to hear that both of you took part in the actual pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think that's amazing. So, like, you both had um, the feelings of what you had to go through, like just different stages of it. Yeah. Um, how did you and your wife come to the decision on who would be carrying the baby? Yeah, it's funny, you know, because lots of people ask us that, and it's very, it's very strange because I think a lot of it was. Um, kind of based on instinct and intuition. I suppose it depends how much of a believer you are in, in this, so bear with me, everyone that's listening on this philosophy. But, <laughs> you know, for, for us, it was a very easy decision. So there was a few bits that, that, that kind of took hold, I suppose. So the first thing is, you know, when we decided, you know, like I was saying in those early on discussions, are we compatible? Are we going to work? Do we want children? You know, naturally, because we're a same-sex couple, you have to ask, well, who's going to carry the child and how's that going to work? And, um, you know, we had those discussions very early on and for me it was um it was kind of never really an issue because I just never wanted to carry and when I was you know just touched on there the kind of instinct piece and and you know it depends how, how open-minded you are I just very very much felt like it's something I've done already in a past life and I know that sounds a bit crazy and out there but it, it's just something that, that I kind of believed I just I feel and I still feel today that I don't feel a need to do it because in some yeah. way I've kind of already done it and I don't really know what I mean by that but it just was a, an overwhelming sense of feeling that it was just not something that I was overly bothered by but I yeah. felt very strongly about it but then similarly um, 
what I did want is I was very, very, very um, equally opposed on the opposite side. I really wanted it to be biologically mine. And that was something that I really, really felt was close to my heart. And then conversely, Sammy just strangely really wasn't bothered at all about biologically it being hers. Um, But she really, really wanted the experience to carry. So a big part of that decision was just kind of nature taking its course that between us, we'd just kind of come up with this seamless process. So, you know, so there was real, there was no kind of um, hardship or real feeling about it because we both sort of decided early on that's what we wanted and we just kind of seemed to fit together, you know, that piece and, and that puzzle. And then another big part of the decision really was that, kind of sense of a feeling that we were both part of the baby that you touched on and and that was a huge huge part of it for us and I think that that was something that was that was really kind of close to our hearts is you know well for me I would have the biological ties Sammy would really have that strong feeling of motherhood and a deep connection because she's ultimately carried our child and given birth to him so and um, I think you know it, it's different for everybody and you know we, we speak to loads of different um kind of same-sex couples that we know that have done various different things and a lot of them weirdly don't actually opt for what <laughs> for what we did um, though yeah. to be fair one of the reasons for that is um, it is the most ex- expensive way to do it yeah. it, it doubled our costs quite literally but, so what, um, you, what way do they usually do? So a lot of them really just go for um, kind of a sperm donor and almost like an artificial um, insemination, like a donor insemination type scenario right, okay. for IVF. But like I say, I think mainly because it's, it's a, a very cost effective way, I think roughly subsidised on the NHS, it's somewhere like three and a half thousand. And for us, we paid in excess of 12,000. So it, it really was... Um, like a, a big outlay but you know it yeah. was something that we felt strongly about and you know for us it was never anything that we were going to deviate from and I still believe you know both of us still think it was the best thing that, that we ever did so and then you've already frozen your embryos so going forward you don't actually have to do treatment again do you it would no. just be your wife exactly and that will make it a lot cheaper for us going forward because we that again this next time we will just be paying for like you say, that that part of the kind yeah. of insemination. So, you know, from that perspective, and that's why I said, you know, you know, when I was giving the kind of oversight of what happened to us is we were very lucky in, in that respect because it really could have started to be a costly process. But the fact that we got all these embryos that we just now pay the storage for, um, you know, really has been a, a blessing, to be honest, from that perspective. And what was the um, process like when choosing a sperm donor? Um, well, interestingly, it's very crazy and unexpected is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Nothing like how I imagined. And I honestly don't know because I've only ever been through my own, my own process, kind of what this was like for everybody else. But um, I, So I assumed that you just got a sperm donor in the UK because well, why wouldn't you? We live in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, on the first few appointments, it was kind of explained to us that the donor needed to be picked from one of the um, sort of two or three registered um websites and I didn't really understand about that but apparently and I don't know if there's just just something that happens in the private world so I can't comment but for us we were told that all hospitals have kind of two or three pre-registered websites and you have to use them because they're the ones that have been vetted and verified as being legitimate and legal to use by that particular hospital so um, to my surprise, the three websites for us, that there was actually two that were Danish uh, websites and one that was a US 
uh, website. So actually there was not even an option for us to be able to use a UK donor. And I was trying to kind of understand why, because, you know, like anything, any sort of expectation, you manifest how it's going to play out in your life. And I just always assumed that we would have a UK donor. So I kind of probed as to why that wasn't. And the answer I was given was really interesting, actually. So apparently what happened was there was a change in the law a few years ago to make all UK donors non-anonymous. So obviously that's basically where the child has the ability to track the father if they wish um, from the age of 18 onwards. Yeah. Uh, understandably in the UK that put a lot of donors off. So now only 2% of um, male, uh, kind of UK male people, like UK males donate in the UK. Um, and, and the reality of that apparently, which blew my mind actually, was that there's now a real risk in the UK um, because there's um, so many people using the, sp- the same donor um, and because of that lack of sperm supply that IVF children could very likely end up with kind of 10 plus brothers or sisters um, right. <laughs> from other IVF treatment. Yeah. Because uh, obviously that same donor would have to be used time and time again because because the sperm is in such short supply in the UK. So once that was kind of explained to us, obviously we were really happy then with the, with, with, with the with the understanding and, and the suggested website. So we kind of then went through that process of researching both U, the US and Denmark because we kind of wanted to understand like culturally how it was for them, um, yeah. more about their, their kind of ethos and things. And, and ultimately we decided to go with one of the Danish websites and that's because when we read about it we really loved the ethos and the kind of grounded nature and moral foundations that Denmark's been built on and also statistically if anyone's interested uh, Danish children are the happiest children in the world so uh, yeah it was really nice uh-huh. yeah we ended up going with um with a sperm with a Danish um sperm donor and uh, from there we kind of then went to find one and, and the first thing we had to do was on the website look at find one that was non-anonymous to obviously fit with the UK law so we quite literally went from a choice of about 15,000 to nine (laughs) Um, so so that obviously narrowed it down naturally for us quite a bit and then we read about those nine in detail and you know why we kind of wanted the the donor Um, and one of the big things for us uh, our main thing was that we wanted him to be to be white initially only because we're both white so you know just kind of in keeping with that family unit we sort of felt that we wanted him to be white but but really from an aesthetics point of view that was the only preference you know it, it, it was just more from you know kind of outlook and people looking at us as, as a family unit we felt that was important but once we kind of ticked that box really the overriding thing for us was all about health and hereditary family illnesses so all we really cared about that was that kind of whatever child we were going to bring in the world was going to be as kind of healthy and, and well and happy as possible so um, we kind of then went through a process of drilling down um, the donors that had no underlying family health issues and that had kind of longevity uh, from an age perspective in, in the history, the family history and the family tree. And that got us down to two. Um, and, and then we kind of had a loose read of their sort of bios and hobbies and, and sort of the reasons why they wanted to donate sperm. Because I think that's always nice. You know, if someone's really in it for the kind of moral reasons, that that's a big selling point because you know they're doing it out of the goodness of the heart. Um, and finally, like I say, we just kind of based it on some similar interests and uh, and then eventually we drilled down to the one we wanted to go to and it, it was really quite a lengthy process you know when I talk about that it really was a process of kind of two or three months to get that, that right piece. okay yeah that is quite long and then if you wanted to find out any more information about him could, could you do that 
or is it once once you've made that choice that's it there's no more um well so to be fair you get a lot of information up front like much more than i ever ever expected so though obviously you're not allowed a, a picture of them now there's right. like two or three pictures of them when they were sort of a, like a baby and a toddler which is yeah. quite nice because you can get an idea of maybe what your child's going to look like and like I say not that aesthetics are remotely important to us but it kind of is nice to put us a name to a face even though it might be 30 years yeah. out so, um, it is nice from that perspective you get a lot of information though like a lot of betting and background checks like I say from a kind of a hereditary and family illness perspective but more importantly we, we probably received like five or six pages just about them and who they were and where they come from and their interests and and the hobbies and what was important to them and the life skills and uh, you know their education and uh, kind of how much family units meant to them and they really do go into a lot of um, in depth so kind of by the time you finished you sort of feel like you know these, these people yeah. and not really much more to give and I mean just to give you an idea in, in terms of the kind of level of depth they go into we even got sent um like audio clips so you right. can speaking and yeah. that then kind of giving accounts as to why they wanted to give sperm and why it was important to them and you know so there was a like I say by the end of it you do in a strange way sort of know these people so yeah. not as much as you're ever legally going to be allowed to know and then kind of from them like I say it really now would be up to our son Zachary when he gets older and um, if he wanted to go and um, kind of find the donor that, that really would be on on him and he would have the legal right to do so. And um, would your sorry would your son actually have a dual nationality if he's got a Danish father? Great question. Um, and the short answer is no, because that, though obviously he's got a Danish father, technically it's, it's purely from a biological medical process perspective. So he is a British nationality. He's been registered in the UK. Me and Sammy, because we were already married, our book both his legal parents already so there's kind of no affiliation whatsoever from that perspective other than uh, and this is very much the way I view it and it possibly is different for everybody and truly I didn't know how I was going to feel to be honest because nobody does because that yeah. kind of presents a wider question is when you're involved in a third party and your child you know d does that change the way you view them the way that you view your family unit but but actually it didn't at all for me i just very much viewed it as a medical procedure and i yeah. think that i viewed it in that way it really just became very clear cut and easy to, to me that process was no different than me going to have a leg operation because i broke some you know broke a bone yeah um, and I think that as long as you can view it in that way, then it never, and you don't make any emotional um, attachments, and then kind of, you know, you're okay. But I think that's difficult. You know, it's different for everybody. It's not something that I've personally struggled with. And, you know, Sammy and I have probably been very lucky that both of us are quite kind of logical and methodical people. And we just sort of viewed it as a means to an end to be able to have a child. But I can 100% see that that would destroy, you know, other people from an emotional perspective. And, um, with the whole process, did you have to attend all of the appointments or would it be the same as heterosexual couples where just the woman would attend the majority of um, the appointments and 
just deal with the nurses and doctors? Um, so well, the honest answer is I don't really know overall because obviously I've only done the same sex um, process, but just from what you're saying, um, naturally, because we both were so heavily involved in it, we both had to go to a lot of appointments. So, you know, if we think about the first part, that was all really about me um, and getting me ready for egg extraction. So you know kind of every all the and you'll know like all the rigmarole you have to go through all the injections and and different stuff and because of some issues that i had and um, i had to have some surplus injections so i was doing like maybe four injections a day for two weeks uh, and then obviously there's all the other stuff that comes with it like the routine tests of blood tests and things so i was very heavily involved at the start because the start was all about me and, and extracting my eggs yeah then naturally um after that then my wife became much much more heavily involved involved because then it, the second part was obviously all about about her and um you know inserting the egg and making sure that the egg didn't reject because it wasn't her you know it wasn't her egg it was almost like a foreign egg uh, in in her body so there was a big piece around that and she had to undergo lots of kind of medical procedures and treatments and things to make sure that was okay as well so uh, you know we both played a heavy role in that whereas i suppose in a heterosexual relationship like you say really there's a lot of onus on just on the woman to, to do that but i think also you know from the onset you know me and sammy are both very very supportive of each other and we are very very close uh, and generally and this is not just about the ivf just in life we are incredibly supportive of each other so we both kind of made a, a big commitment to each other at the start that no matter what we were both going to go to all the appointments so that kind of wiped that out either way you know we just said whatever needs to happen if the appointment for you are just for me irrespective we'll both go together so that's kind of how it panned out for us sounds like it was really exciting it was <laughs> yeah because like both of you joining in and you know participating together it sounds like yeah you would be very supportive of each other and it's a nice bond that you're creating together oh, hugely because it's a very shared experience and, and it is yeah great. like you say i'll never i will never understand how it is for a heterosexual woman and, and it must be much more difficult yeah because we were almost going through through the same thing at the same time you know yeah there was such a heavy involvement you know it really is like having another IVF buddy with you 24 yeah. 7 um, yeah. you know so you kind of really do truly understand that feeling and compassion and you know all the kind of things and the, the, the emotions that, that go with it really so yeah it is very different from that perspective um and with you being same set what was the paper like uh, paperwork procedure like was there a lot more paperwork to go through um, so uh, I would say anyway, there's just a lot of paperwork involved in IVF yeah. from my experience. Um, and, and I don't think it was necessarily any different from a paperwork perspective, though. We did have to undergo some counselling. And again, I don't know if that was because we were same sex or not, but I'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. just specifically from a paperwork perspective, um, that was one of the things that I actually hated to be honest and, it, and, and um, for us it was definitely one of the worst parts and it's something that I still feel really strongly about and and I, and I actually don't know so you might be able to answer this for me Colette but um, the questions for us were, were very much uh, right from the offset very invasive I found so there, were, there was a long part of the paperwork that was about mental health um, which I personally found and still find very wrong. So 
you know, if you look, and this is the way I view it, so if you're a heterosexual couple who conceive naturally, you don't have to go through any tests, you know, you don't have to bring up your past or be judged or get questioned by a third party, you just decide that you're going to conceive, you conceive and, and that's it and, you know, everyone's a winner. Uh, but this paperwork that we had to fill in, you know, that were questions like, have you ever been depressed? Have you ever suffered low self-esteem? Do you have lots of low days? You know, right, right up to the much more severe things, you know, like bipolar and whilst I understand that they're trying to protect people, you know, and obviously somebody that's like a severe schizophrenic, for example, you know, that might affect the ability to look after your child on your own. And I did overall find the questions like low self-esteem and depression very unnecessary and demoralising, you know, who hasn't suffered low self-esteem yeah. times? And, you know, when we, when we look now statistically, 25% of the population suffer or have suffered at some point with depression and anxiety. So what are we saying? That a quarter of, of you know, the UK population can't have kids? Because, it because yeah. you know, and how does that affect your ability to, to be a mother, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it was difficult because both myself and Sammy, and, and not recently, you know, maybe in the past 10 years, and very luckily, only mildly, have both suffered depression. And it does really put you on edge when they start asking those types of questions. Yeah. You start thinking in your mind, well, if I tick yes, are they going to stop the treatment? Is it going to Is it going to affect my ability to be able to have kids? And, you know, not really. It's none of their business because... I also think that whilst it's okay, you know, you can ask all the questions in the world, equally, what if there's somebody that's never suffered any of those things and then they have the baby and, and then they do suffer severe mental illness? Look at how many people uh, all over the world suffer postnatal depression. Yeah. That's yeah. a huge, huge likely outcome and actually probably arguably may be really much more likely to happen than it is to just suffer a general mental health, you know, mental health illness. So, you know, for me, I just don't agree with it and the judgment behind it um because also there were other questions on there so it, one of the ones was um about if anybody you had ever known which is a stupid and really broad question anyway um, has ever committed any crimes or had any custodial sentences and again i've got i've got the same issue with that question because yeah for example, and this was the actual truth for me, you know, um, my cousin had, at the time, was serving a, a suspended custodial sentence for stealing some money from um, a company he was working at. So, you know, again, if I disclose that, does that affect my ability to bring up a child, you know? And I, and I just think it's something I felt so passionately about because there's so much injustice in those questions. Like, I don't even see my cousin or have any affiliation with him whatsoever. So yeah. why that's somebody else's business and why does that affect whether I get IVF or not so you know it's just something I feel really strongly about because it, you know if you conceive naturally you're just not treated that way yeah I don't actually recall having any of those questions oh, well that's uh, interesting because maybe yeah. you see and, and that's again and that's the whole premises of this podcast isn't it is exploring yeah. different, different people's experiences but yeah there was a lot of that for us real real kind of heavy questions about our almost our ability really I think they were questioning and and that kind of was what happened with the counselling that I went through. Yeah so you mentioned about counselling now did they um was it forced upon you to attend counselling or was it your choice? Um, No it, it was forced upon us and what happened was we were just told that we had to go to a counselling session um, as part of the process and it was a counselling session I, I, you know it wasn't like a prolonged series of, of counsellings or anything but it was like an hour 
uh, and both me and Sammy had to attend at the same time. And, and again, that was awful. And when I look back on that process, I do think that that maybe was something to do with us same, being same sex because a lot of the questions were heavily based around being same sex. And there was a lot of questions about, are we ready? And I just found that incredibly rude and condescending. Like how many people decide that they're going to be ready? And then again, it comes back to that whole natural conception thing. You know, why are we being treated differently? Because we're going to IVF. you know, they're, they're, how many people in the world are not ready? You know, look at the number of kind of children, you know, people that uh, have children, you know, un- underage, you know, how people who get pregnant kind of 13, 14, 15 make a mistake, you know, they weren't ready. Lots of people aren't ready to have kids. Um, yeah. You know, ironically, we're spending £12,000. How ready do you want us to be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think that's rude. You know, it's a rude question. And not only that, no one can prepare you for what happens like during IVF because my whole idea or expectation of IVF was completely different from my actual experience so I don't think anyone can actually be ready for it no absolutely and that's I mean it's a real kind of strong uh, mentally resilient process is IVF as we all know and even though you know overall and I'm kind of picking faults at the system overall the actual process for us was was fantastic and it was and it was seamless but you know like for you like for you Claire, i know we've spoke before um you know about your own experiences and for yeah. many of the women out there who suffered kind of complications medically it's a really real test of your strength you know your mental ability and nobody can prepare you for that so you know the questions for us um in the counseling were just ridiculous and uh, you know another one was um how are we going to explain to our son that we're same sex yeah and, 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 and you know what business is that of anybody else's and it? it presents a wider question is why do we have to you know yeah. are we like a special cause why do i ha- why do i have to explain to somebody um, and let's bear in mind he's probably not going to ask that question till he's like six or seven and he has some competence or knowledge you know yeah couple types in the world so do I have to deal with this question before we've even conceived why is that something I have to think about right now and why should I why should I be answerable to you and it even kind of got to a point where we got some leaflets given um, of groups to go to like support groups where we could meet with other same-sex couples and talk about their experiences and they kind of offered us a book as well that we could kind of talk to our son about why we're a same-sex couple and I just think disgusting like we're in the 21st century um yeah. you know, i'm entitled to be who i want to be um and my son will make his own decisions about the questions he wants to ask sammy and i in the future because hey who knows 10 years from now maybe nobody cares look how far the world's come already you know and we're very lucky you know sammy and i are very lucky that we live in a westernized country people are very very accepting and we're only becoming more accepting of same-sex couples so maybe by the time zachary's 10 nobody gives a bugger anyway like maybe that's another yeah. question that comes up so to to kind of be asked those questions in a in a very invasive and intense environment for me just felt really wrong to be honest um did you find that the whole process affected your mental state like with all the questions that you were asked all the time did it make you start thinking of things that you never thought of before um if i'm being honest from that perspective no i think i just felt very passionately um about the system and possibly some of the um, issues that were being thrown up, um, you know, in regards to kind of the same sex process. And I think that that was more just um, 
just anger for me, um, just from a perspective that I, I felt it was kind of very um, unjustified, a lot of the, the questions in the process and kind of the things that we had to undergo. But I mean, specifically from a mental state perspective, this was very, very um, probably different to me, for me than most people. And the reason for that was um, I lost my brother in 2016. Um, he was 19, unfortunately, he had cancer and after a seven month battle, he passed, sadly passed away. And, um, you know, the reason that that became such an issue to me was because um, my brother and I were very, very close and we'd gone to, uh, I'd gone to stay at the hospital with him for almost really the seven months that he was in there. So because he was a teenager, he was in the teenage cancer unit and therefore everyone kind of had their own ward and their own um, room. And within that, you could have someone to stop over with you. So I pretty much spent seven months of my life laid next to him in hospital and and because of that you know I had lots of kind of mental health issues that, that came after that the, the real natural things you know yeah. and, and then PTSD became a big part of that for me so really after my brother passed the IVF was kind of the next big time that I'd stepped in hospital and spent a yeah. lot of time in a hospital um, and you know it really dragged up a lot of hurt for me and a lot of memories. So the actual IVF process in itself, you know, was a seamless process, but the, the, the kind of treatments and things were, I personally found very hard, like injecting myself, I found very, very difficult. And um, the kind of whole cl clinical process and, you know, going to and from the hospital all the time really dragged up those memories. Um, particularly the egg extraction was a big, big, big deal for me and something that I personally struggled with. And that was because obviously anyone that's gone through egg extraction will know that you have to be sedated. And um, I'd seen my brother be sedated when he was in a horrific amount of pain. And because yeah. of that, I was making those mental associations and it was really causing me some kind of severe anxiety and panic attacks leading up to that day where I went, where I went for the procedure. Um, and, and also obviously all the kind of blood tests you have to go to particularly because my brother had blood cancer he had a um, rare form of leukemia so um, again all the kind of blood tests and things that I were having a lot of the processes were very very mirrored um, to kind of what my brother had gone through so I think mentally for me that was the challenge more, more than being resilient through the actual IVF it was more my own mental struggle that I kind of had to deal with because I was suffering with this kind of post-traumatic stress disorder um, and, and going into the hospital had kind of brought all that back for me so it was a very kind of personal journey overall yeah um now in the past you've worked um some high pressure jobs uh, how did you balance your work life and attending appointments like were you working at the time did your work understand that you had to attend all of these appointments were they quite open to it yeah so that's a really good question and, and actually um so it's kind of linking back to my brother, obviously, and you were talking about high-pressured roles. I did have a number of high-pressured roles um, in the kind of financial banking sector for about 10 years. But then post my brother's death, I just tried to go back to work and couldn't. And because of that, I ended up um, leaving and decided that I wanted to kind of pursue my, my dreams, which was to be a property investor. So when we started undergoing this um process of IVF I was kind of maybe 10-11 months into being a business owner okay. so for me although I had the pressure of building a business what I also actually had was the flexibility to kind of do what I wanted um, yeah so, so for me personally uh, that 
you know, that, that was kind of an easy process and it was a bit of a no-brainer because I could just be as flexible as I needed and kind of shift work and things around the appointment. Sammy, however, was still very much employed at the time. Uh, as she still is she works for an electrical power company and she's quite high up there and obviously there's, there's, there was and still are a lot of pressures on her generally to go to work because she um deals with kind of some huge clients and she can't just sort of drop drop those readily um but but no you know her work overall were very supportive and i can't say they weren't you know she had a very 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 good boss at the time um who had actually had her own struggles with conceiving and, and in the end decided just to not have any children right. so i do think that that really made a difference to the kind of leeway and ability that sammy got to be able to go to these appointments and and ultimately when she was pregnant just kind of be off when she needed when she was poorly because uh, she had because of the um kind of potential rejection of the egg going into Sammy. Sammy, as I said before, had to take a lot of medication. And obviously, as we all know, when you're pregnant in the early days, most people suffer with morning sickness. Well, not only did Sammy have morning sickness, all these tablets she was having had side effects of sickness. So for the first right. four weeks, she was very, very, very poorly, almost bed bound. But but again, um, the the saving grace with that was, and again, it was probably just luck, like I say, that her boss, because her boss had had trouble conceiving and, and in the end just obviously given in from her perspective, she was very, very understanding because she really wanted it to work work for Sammy. So so I do think that on both parts, we were we were incredibly lucky, actually, that we, we, we had that kind of time and space and that there were no pressures on us, really, to kind of go to work or there were no limitations, you know, we never had to change an appointment because of work so we, we were lucky in that regard definitely okay and then you decided to start your own podcast called the ambitious entrepreneur what pushed you to start this show and how can listeners tune in and how can they get in contact with you oh great question um so <laughs> So, yes, so similarly like your pod, podcast, we, you know, I, I'm on Anchor FM um, and so it's just anchor.fm forward slash ambitious hyphen entrepreneur if anybody wants to listen. Um, it will be available on iTunes as well very, very shortly. I've just had a number of technical issues with that. So watch this space. That'll be up and running in the, in the next coming weeks. So there'll be the kind of two main ways that you can listen. Um, I do also upload... Uh, all the video footage of that onto YouTube. We've got our own YouTube channel as well, so you, so you can go on there. Um, so what's it about was the question you asked me. Well, um, it's it's really interviewing highly, highly successful people. So people who've overcome huge adversity um, and kind of gone on to be hugely successful in the career. So that's kind of understanding what motivates them, what drives them continually. And I have been very, very lucky to uh, interview some incredibly successful people, Colette being one of them. For <laughs> um, you know, but, but I have, you know, I've been lucky enough to speak to Olympic gold medalists, race drivers, film producers, world leading scientists. And, and really the premises of the podcast is to, you know, to inspire others to kind of pursue the dreams. After what happened to my brother, you know, I very much felt that um, I had to, you know, one shot at life. And, you know, when you're faced with that kind of stack, reality I you know I watch my brother die and I think when you see something like that you can't unsee it so it does make you question you know your reality and, and life and how kind of short it is and that's ultimately why I went to pursue my dreams and I would just love 
to be able to inspire other people to do the same. And so the premises really is by interviewing these people that have achieved high level of success and kind of view their lives as uh, limitless. You know, there's no kind of limits to what they can do. I hope to really inspire other people to be able to do it. And, and I think really what pushed me into that was just constantly speaking to other people that kept inspiring me. So, you know, over this kind of process and, you know, anybody that's self-employed will know as a business owner, one of the biggest things that you have to do is network. And um, so because of that, I'm always, always meeting kind of really new and exciting people. And I go to a lot of motivational talks and things. And and in lockdown, I I started to do a lot of online networking, really, because the property market closed, so I couldn't buy up any more houses. Um, So I decided I was just going to kind of spend my time expanding my network. And, And in doing so, I listened to this guy do an incredible online talk and he said that he'd interviewed over 400 of the world's top achievers in 20 in sort of a 20 year span to understand what success is and, and I just thought like this uh, idea was incredible and in the time I just kind of thought that's amazing why don't I do the same but record it and kind of make it possible to be able to share those interviews with the world and kind of help others to gain the self-belief that I have and I know you have, Colette, to believe that anything is possible. And and so I did. And that's kind of how The Ambitious Entrepreneur was born. Um, And I'm about 25 interviews in, so not quite at the 400 mark. I think I've got a few (laughs) more yet. but yeah, overall, that, that's the, um, I suppose, the idea and the thinking behind the podcast. So if anybody listening uh, wants to go and get some inspiration, please feel free to have a look. Amazing. I can't wait to listen to some of your other episodes as well. Thank you. <laughs> um, and lastly, do you have any words of wisdom for any couples looking to undergo fertility treatment? Yes, I think there are two main things that you need when going through fertility treatment. And this also could just be a wider point about going through any hardship. Um, I think the first piece is resilience. So I think you both have to be very, very, very resilient and just be prepared for if the worst happens and if things don't go your way. Like like I said, you know, me and Sammy were the lucky ones. Um, We really just you know went through that process seamlessly and, and you know a lot of that will have been because there was nothing medically wrong with either of us so you know from our perspective purely speaking about IVF we really you know didn't really encounter many issues but just you know the the intensity of, of any sort of surgical procedure in that kind of clinical environment puts a lot of pressure on you both so I think you both need to be prepared to be very very you know have that resilience and kind of prepare for the worst should the worst come you know someone once said to me prepare for the worst and expect the best and I think you should carry that premises in life because that's kind of what will get you through Uh, and then I think the second piece which is absolutely huge um, is communication so me and Sammy have very strong lines of communication and we've definitely worked at that over a long period of time and and that's what's you know enabled us to overcome obviously not just the IVF and fertility but other things you know like the death of my brother and uh, you know but but if you don't talk in those types of you know in those times of kind of hardship and and difficulties it, it will end up breaking you so I think definitely just just be really open and honest with one another you know particularly you know like we were just speaking about in the case of heterosexual couples IVF is very very much uh, the onus is on the woman and, and you know if there's any guys listening to this uh, and you know your wives are kind of going through IVF 
just really, you know, speak to them and be really understanding and compassionate and, and kind of understand what they're going through. And equally, you know, and equally, you know, for the women and your kind of partners, um, you know, just speak to the guys. Maybe they just feel very kind of, you know, left out. You know, because that that could be a you yeah. know thing. So I just think really open lines of communication and talking to one another. You know, it, it, it's really important that you both are fully open and honest, and you understand the process that you're in and how you're both feeling and where you are. Because often I think, just generally in relationships, like you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks can go by, and you both get really busy and things happen, and suddenly one is on a totally different playing field to the other one. You know, one one is going through something that the other one didn't even know about. So yeah. always make time for each other, and always sit down and talk, and just take that time. I think from an you know with IVF. Take maybe I don't know you know the process is long so and I'm just kind of making broad assumptions here but I don't know set yourself I don't know two hours a week where you both just sit down and talk about how it's going and how you're both feeling or something because I just think that those those lines of communication are key. Amazing that sounds like very good advice. Um, well, Sarah, thank you so much for allowing me to interview you today and for sharing your story. I'm so happy that your treatment was successful. <laughs> Uh, me too, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure your brother is very proud of you and he's looking down on you and he's with you all the time and your whole family because um, what you went through is also very difficult um, with everything that happened in the past like mentally it's a lot to take in and like you said with your own memories of um, going to the hospital as well in the past it is very difficult to go through it again um, and lastly I just want to wish you good luck with your podcast um, I'll add all the details to the episode so that listeners can also tune in lovely thank you so much and um, I appreciate all your kind words as well about my brother um, and honestly thanks again obviously like I say it's an absolute breath of fresh air to be invited on things like this because normally um, I only ever talk about property so it really does <laughs> make it makes a great a great change um, and thank you everyone for listening to me I, I really hope you kind of enjoyed what I had to say Thank you. And this is actually going to be my last episode in this series. But for everyone listening, join me next time on The Road to Motherhood.